Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome to episode five of season 21 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. On the show today, I'm talking to Isabel Chapuis and Gabriel Rizzo, the authors of a fascinating new book called HR Futures 2030, a design for future-ready human resources. Why is it that we wrote a book on HR, especially if we were not HR specialists? Well, it's, it's because companies need to anticipate. Um, uh, and we know that there are ways to anticipate correctly in, in far futures. And so companies, they need to anticipate the incoming disruptions. And I think HR needs to guide organizations and also their human capital into the future. And we know the future is coming faster and faster at us. So in fact, the, the pandemic, that was a wake up call for uh, all these inco- um, upcoming disruptions. So to do that, we need a future HR, a future ready HR. Throughout our conversation, Isabel and Gabriel run through their 10 traits for the future of work in HR and cover some of the key disciplines that HR leaders will need to consider to be successful in 2030 and beyond. Isabel, Gabriel and I discuss what is foresight and how can techniques from the world of defence be used in HR and in business to provide a strategic advantage. We look at the importance of topics such as trust, community, digital and sustainability to organisations of the future. We explore in detail three of the 22 disciplines highlighted in their book. The first is called Know Your Employee. The second is focused on the newly blurred lines between work and life. And the third is a fascinating new area called HR Hacktivism. And then finally, Isabel and Gabriel provide their perspective on the role of technology in supporting employee experience. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Isabel Chapuis and Gabriel Rizzo, uh, the authors of a fascinating uh, book on the future of the HR function, HR Futures 2030, a design for future-ready human resources to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Isabel, Gabriel, it's great to have you both on the show. Um, Isabel, maybe you can go first. Can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to yourself and to uh, your current work? Sure. Well, hello, David. And and, uh, let me just thank you and everyone listening for this great opportunity. So we're really thrilled here with Gabriel to be here today, whatever here means, right? Uh, So for me, it means Lausanne in the French speaking part of Switzerland. And uh, so you asked for a brief introduction. So uh, I'm an economist by training. I'm an author, obviously, right? And I am also an independent board member. Uh, and I guess I could also say that, you know, I'm an expert in executive education because I've been in leading positions in the field of exec ed for over 15 years. So I've been director of the EMBA and I founded and directed the executive school of the business faculty of the University of Lausanne. So in a nutshell, economist, author, board member and exec ed expert. That's me. So, Gabriel, maybe on to you. Of course, Isabel. Well, uh, David, it's great to be here with you today. Um, I'm a futurist, an author, and an executive defense advisor. A PhD in string theory and astrophysics, and over the past 15 years, I've grown up to be one of the usual suspects in the field of government and defense foresight. I am the NATO member at large for strategic foresight and future studies, and member at large is an honorary title given to those NATO uh, recognizes as the world-class expert, as they say. Um, And I'm also the futures advisor to the chief scientist of the U.S. Air Force and the chief scientist of the U.S. Space Force. I also lead futures thinking at the level of the vice chief of defense in Italy. And previously, I've been a ministerial advisor for futures for the Italian minister of defense. Together with Isabel... We founded and direct the Swiss Center for Positive Futures, that is the foresight entity, the summit of futures thinking at University of Lausanne. The center focuses on major trends and weak signals and their influences on society, economy, and technology. What we do is providing seamless transition from near to far with incredible sharpness so that leaders can see no limits in their opportunities. Brilliant. Well, it's, it's, it's great to have you both on the show. And 
I think there's a, there's a wealth of topics that we could get into. I mean, I, I, I'd love to explore some of the stuff around NATO and, and, and NASA, um, Gabriel. But the subject today is HR, because that's uh, our listeners are predominantly uh, leaders and, and practitioners in the HR function. You've both got amazing backgrounds. Um, I'd love to understand what inspired you to, to, to write the book um, uh, uh, you know, about HR, effectively, or the future of HR. All right, I'll take that one. So uh, what is it that inspired us to write this book? So I've got a good story here. So let me tell you that. So um, with regards to my career history, um, you know, I worked initially in finance in Zurich. And then I said, as I said, I worked in execad industry. And that's where I've been working at the intersection between academia and the corporate world. And that was during 15 years. And Naturally, I was always in close contact with leaders and CEOs and a lot of CHROs. And so in the last six to seven last years, I've increasingly seen that divide between what professors were teaching and what the world of work was actually needing. So I started digging into the concept of the future of work. And then I actually asked, or I'd say even I requested in 2018 to be moved from the operations of leading the executive school to do exploration. So look into the future of work and the future of skills at the University of Lausanne. And at the beginning, what I did was like what a lot of people do. So it's dive into data-driven future of skills and how to use data and bundle jobs into tasks, into skills, you know, to help reorient individuals professionally and, you know, help them transition to new jobs. But what struck me is that the, those jobs are changing so fast and functions and disciplines, they're evolving so super quickly that basically uh, it's going to be hard and exhausting for individuals to, to cope with the pace of change. So back then I thought, you know what, I need to find a way to anticipate more uh, so that we could train people to be relevant longer. Uh, but for that, I just needed to go look into far futures like 10, 15 years, uh, and there's no data about the future. So I had no clue, um, you know, how to do this and, and who could do that. So I had to do some homework, so, and I did. And I realized that uh, it's really in the defense world that you can find the, the, the real professionals in, in the field of foresight. So, I mean, I mean, the really best ones, because if you fail at anticipating in defense, and Gabriel will be able to tell you that better than me, but uh, the stakes are super high because lives could be threatened and, you know, nations could lose their sovereignty. So, you know, in defense, you do foresight right. So I reached out to Arma Suisse, which is the Swiss army. And slowly that led me to NATO, which was, of course, really cool. And eventually I met Gabriel and that was serendipitous. I, I, it was through LinkedIn in a way. So now you just imagine me asking this high level futurist expert in the defense realm and with a PhD in astrophysics and going like, please, would you help me look into the future of work and, you know, like in the future of HR? And that was, um, you know, his initial reaction was, really? Like, is that a joke? So, um, so but there was, I think it was really good. I, I, I cracked that one line that got his attention and that was, human skills obsolescence is a national security threat and education is our first line of defense. So, so basically, I, I, I used his language, so, and that's how I got his attention, and that's how I, I got this brilliant Roman futurist from the defense world to come up to Switzerland and uh, help me run a foresight workshop on the future of HR at the Horizon 2030. So uh, that's how the whole story started, and I think Gabriel has a, you know, a great final of the story now. Yeah, well, that, that's a that's a great a great springboard from where to start. Well, I, I was as Isabel said, I was coming from the the world of defense, where I still am actually. Uh, so there's in the world of defense, there's this uh, painstaking attention to how you create knowledge around foresight, how you exploit foresight products. So uh, there's plenty, there's a wealth of, of knowledge and techniques, methodologies, practices around around alternative analysis, critical thinking. That is, you know, a a trove of a couple of hundred techniques. So it's there's an extensive knowledge there. Um, I was coming from 
from that side of the water where my works have been guiding uh, strategies of, of PPPs, public-private partnerships, that were worth almost $3 billion. Uh, other that have been shaping industrial investments for $25 billion in research development and innovation. And my main part of, um, of work was informing the $1 trillion of defense investment in the alliance. But Isabel, you know, she's extraordinary with people and she was ex as extraordinary with her pitch to me. So I decided to help her in giving shape to the idea and nailing her vision. But then COVID hit. So here come COVID. And, and COVID has had this incredible acceleration to everything digital. Uh, and I mean, it brought us forward something like 10 years in 10 days. And we started experiencing everything that we have imagined in the, in the book. So we worked in virtual space, as it were, the, the physical space. We were mixing, melding um, in-life and online experiences in what is called the on-life, uh, of which we have a chance to talk about this later, I hope. Um, and, you know, building step-by-step step this what was thought to be a white paper, like 10-page white paper, very easy, uh, sharp and sweet. Well, it became, uh, you know, it, it grew more and more because we discovered that we had so many things to say from the workshop that we hosted at the very beginning of January 2020 before COVID. So it became the, the book that we have. Well, I must admit, I mean, Isabel, you were kind enough to send me the book a few weeks ago and, and I've been reading through it and really enjoying it as well. And, and it's great to hear the story behind the book. We almost, you know, usually when you pick up a book, you don't know the story behind it, but that, that's, a, that's a wonderful story. Gabriel, I'd love to uh, delve a little bit further. We hear a lot of terms banded around such as futurism and, and foresight. Obviously, as an expert in these areas, I'd love to understand your definition of what they are and maybe what the difference is as well. And then maybe applying it to the defense industry, why is it so important in the defense industry? And I guess that's particularly topical at the moment with the, the situation in Ukraine. David, that's a great question. Well, let me just remark very briefly that futurism uh, is an archaic and somewhat incorrect way to talk about foresight. And it's more or less an equal footing with futuristics or futurology. So it's an old style and, you know, um, as I said, archaic way of referring to, to that. To arrive at the definition of foresight, I needed to, to uh, walk you through a very brief introduction uh, that speaks of anticipation, futures literacy, future studies, and then defining foresight. So imagine you, you have a dinner tonight. Uh, and of course, you have to uh, think of what you have to buy before getting dinner or what, what uh, recipes you want to prepare tonight. Well, the fact that you're imagining what you need to do actually to get to this dinner scenario is an in innate capacity. It's inherent of every one of us. And it's imagining a future state of a complex system, in this case ourselves, in the future so that we can make decisions in the present. This capability is innate and it's called anticipation. Anticipation is the capacity of an organism to incorporate the what we call the later than now into its functioning in ways that are relevant. Now, not everyone is able to uh, access and to make use of anticipation in the same way. The, uh, our capability to uh, access different futures and make sense of them differs from, uh, from person to person. So... This is something that, however, can be learned. So the capability to sense and make sense of the future is what we call futurist literacy, and it's a capability for the 21st century. But why do we imagine the future? And what shapes and influences the origins and structure of the futures we imagine? And most importantly, once we have answers to these questions, that, that means uh, having a better grasp of anticipation. Does it mean that we are able to make better use of imagination? These questions are the core of what future studies does, enhancing our understanding of 
the discipline of anticipation. Foresight is at the intersection between future studies and strategy. Foresight does not use the future as an objective to reach, but rather as a construct that is expandable with the only purpose to open up an increased understanding of better decisions in the present. Foresight is the ability to illuminate the broadest volume in the futures cone of possibilities, trends, and themes to be in the futures, so to prevent the loss of initiative and provide strategic advantage. So clearly, that's why it's, it's paramount in defense, because defense is hard. For anything to work in the defense world, it has to withstand extreme and most often completely unique requirements. Because, as Isabel was hinting at, defense is one of the few high assurance organizations where if something fails, people die. Now, for that specific reason, a staggering amount of painstaking research, design, engineering, development are poured into creating defense capabilities. And it takes a whole lot of time. There are research showing that it's not just uh, folklore, that it takes 20 years from imagining to have the big red button and actually having the big red button on your desk uh, to release, to unleash hell in theater. This means that the moment you are thinking of having that capacity, so you launch all that research, design, uh, engineering, and development activities, it takes 20 years. So it's a different world. You start doing things in a world that is different um, to, to the one that these capacities <clears throat> and capabilities will be deployed. That's a um, just a broad strokes uh, on what is defense foresight, why that's important. Brilliant. Um, fascinating, Gabriel. And I'm sure something our listeners, it's, you know, one of the great things about hopefully this podcast is people learn new things. And I think that's a great example of, of learning something new, which may be slightly outside HR. But maybe yeah, we can now, you know, Isabel, we can now start to apply that to HR. Obviously, both your backgrounds are predominantly outside HR. You know, we've talked about what, you know, we talked about why you wrote the book, but, but why specifically write about the future of HR? And why do you feel, for example, that HR and HR leaders are so important to help organizations prepare for the future? All right. So um, unlike Gabriel, I, I'm not a futurist, right? Uh, at best, I'm an aspiring futurist. But it's true, too, that uh, the future of work has been one of my main axes of thinking and of research over the past years. And uh, it really became increasingly clear, I think, to all of us that the world of work as we knew it, that is back in 2019, when we launched the HR 2030 project, well, that world of work would eventually um, I mean, cease to exist, right? Because the values on which this whole system is based, those values, they're no longer relevant. And I mean, they're just simply no longer sustainable. So, um, so we had been seeing those signs of change for a long time already, but I think these changes, they were approaching really, really fast. So uh, it was clear to me when we launched all this that HR leaders would find themselves at the, at the center of this turmoil and, uh, you know, at the center of what we can call a perfect storm, right? Well, they would have to manage a human capital that was growingly out of step with a disrupted environment and also manage a human capital which was going to need to be used to working with you know, intelligent machines, robots, AI, and, and the like. So why is it that we wrote a book on HR, especially if we were not HR specialists? Well, it's, it's because companies need to anticipate. Um, uh, and we know that there are ways to anticipate correctly in, in far futures. And so companies, they need to anticipate the incoming disruptions. And I think HR needs to guide organizations and also their human capital into the future. And we know the future is coming faster and faster at us. So, in fact, the, the pandemic, that was a wake-up call for uh, all these um, upcoming disruptions. So, to do that, we need a future HR, a future-ready HR. So, hence... And certainly one of the things that we talk to organizations about in our work, which is predominantly around people analytics and, and, and harnessing people data to, to make better decisions, make better outcomes for, for employees and businesses, is having that outside in thinking through HR, 
when we're talking about then, yes, it's about external to the organization, but we're also talking about understanding the challenges of the business. You know, what you're what you've produced here is something at a new level is really bring that outside in thinking, which is so important to support organizations. Now, I know one of the, the, the key catalysts for the book was a workshop that you ran with a large group of HR practitioners. You know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what happened in that workshop and, and how you use that as, as well as other information to start to build out the, the structure of the book. Uh, well, I think that uh, you 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 you're right here. Uh, it's about getting a broader perspective of what is impacting the world of HR, and uh, um, we did that. We did that workshop um, before COVID, BC, right? Uh, because we started everything in 2019, and it's true. We worked with a large group. I think we were about 40 to 50 people, and most of them are featured in the book, by the way. Uh, but uh, but they were all not they were not HR practitioners or HR experts per se. I mean they were what we call key actors of the world of HR, and that's different because of course we had experts HR experts we had CHROs and you know um, but that was only thirty percent. The rest um, they were for one part obviously academics right like economists data scientists we had also um, experts in AI we had medical doctors uh, and then we also had another group um, say for the remaining 30 percent uh, which was made of disruptors for example we had founders of startups in HR tech or in education so that was a, a very very diverse group of people and also we tried to have 50 50 uh, male female so that it was a a good work to create this group of people. So that was for the who. And uh, you also asked how we used the workshop to structure the book. So, uh, well, that was thanks to Gabriel and, and his really unique expertise in foresight. What we did is uh, we designed a workshop structure, which was based on the methodologies that we borrowed from the world of defense, from his world, right? So, uh, Besides the obvious um, the thorough literature review, we used existing future work scenarios that are available, which were based on the potential impact of disruptive technology. So from that, this, this picture we had, um, we drew uh, those 20 new disciplines and, and the implementation guidelines that, that came with it that we have in the book. So basically the same function, but a new environment, uh, like Gabriel said, 20 years, right? Uh, in 20 years, when you push the red button, it's not the same world. Same thing here. In, in 10 years, the world of work is different. So new environment, new disciplines for HR. No, it's great because, you, know, if you, if you, you know, if you just had 30, 30 HR professionals in a room, you would have collected some interesting opinions and data and everything else. But I love that mix of bringing academics, economists, typically thinking longer into the future, Data science, because obviously, you know, what are you doing needs to be needs to have data behind it as well. Um, AI and technology, and then I love the medical element as well, because I and again, I've not got to this part in the book, but I presume part of that is looking at long, longevity of, of people and how long people are going to be working. For example, um, you know, so so really, really fascinating. When we come back in just a moment, Gabriel will walk us through the ten traits of the future that he and Isabel believe will be the most relevant for HR in 2030. This series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast is sponsored by 365 Talents. 365 Talents is a talent management platform that uses artificial intelligence to increase internal mobility, engage your employees and prepare for the future. Is 2022 the year you are looking to transform your workforce? Are you ready to become a boardroom rock star? If you are looking for better skills, better careers, better business, look no further. 365 Talents is already transforming HR at companies such as EY, Alliance, and Bearing Point. Want to know how? Follow our journey and learn how improving talent experience will boost your business outcomes at 365talents.com. That's 365talents.com. Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast with Gabriel Rizzo and Isabel Chapuis. Now, back to the conversation. 
I know, and again, for those that haven't got the book yet, you know, some beautifully designed images in there. We're going to talk about this one now, which is the, the 10 traits for the future of work and HR that you cover. So let's talk about that. You know, there are a lot of emerging areas in there that, that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, uh, such as the speed of change, digital, the impact of digital and AI, dematerialized work, uh, trust and community. Can you share your thoughts on the 10 traits that you have developed and, and then what they actually mean for, for, H, for the HR professionals listening? Sure, absolutely, um, David. So the, uh, the idea of the, <clears throat> of the traits of the future um, is about exactly looking um, 10 years out and uh, shaping this future scenario so that we, we are able, by this description, to capture a whole lot of signals that would be unable to be just there if we were just looking at the present and projecting this out uh, 10 years. So we're not looking at our 2030 version of 2020, but we're looking at an entirely complex, organic 2030 by weaving in all these changes. Um, the traits are, uh, as, as such, general traits. However, they are looked at through an HR lens. So, um, for instance, the, the first ones like more faster, that's about the speed and impact of technology. Uh, we declense that into uh, how this exert a change on skilling, upskilling, the stages of working life. How does, uh, how does this uh, change the impact of the external environment into uh, organizations and your organization's processes? Um, going end-to-end -end from recruitment to retirement. And what does retirement mean in an exponential world? Uh, <clears throat> the second one is, is, a, is a keystone of what we're doing, the digital cleaving power uh, that's coming from, from philosophy, actually, the work of Florida on the ethics of information. Uh, cleaving is, is a very specific, very special word in English because it, it means both separating and gluing together. And just saying this for our non-native speakers audience. Uh, so the cleaving power of the digital technology is exactly um, taking uh, apart atoms of reality that we thought indivisible and re-gluing them together in a way we weren't foreseeing. For instance, location and presence. So we are together today to have this beautiful conversation but not exactly together the way together was meant to mean, right? So this separating these atoms, like location and presence. Then we, uh, we look at community, the fact that uh, on, you know, due to, this, uh, to these changes, uh, to these forces that are shaping the future, um, the human response is self-organizing um, to understand and, and uh, channel these transitions happening at a very high speed. Um, and this, of course, is mediated by another trait that we'll look at, that's trust is an intangible enabler for organization. Uh, and that happens, this enabler is, is crucial because it's the empowerment of individuals and the empowerment of technology. You can't actually onboard or use or uh, lean on a technology if you don't trust that. Another trait that, that we're looking at is centaurs and knights. That comes from, from the idea of how different generations uh, couple together with technology. So how the, and, and moreover, also the new and different ways in which you know, and, and if you have exponential technology, then you have exponential compression of time because you have time having exponentially more value than before. So how this compression of time uh, forces different generations to integrate the best of human and machine intelligence. Some of them can simply uh, morph together as a centaur. Some of them can just be like, like a knight that he has the power uh, to harness uh, animal might, uh, but as well, you know, you can be on your, on your horse or you can get off your horse. So it's not a unicum. Um, we go through dematerialized work uh, that uh, 
one of the of the key points we make there is uh, that there are transformational uh, takeaways happening, uh, and we go through the the threeization as we call them: uh, taskization, pulverization, and servitization of work and economy. Where pulverization is the unbundling of jobs and profiles and simple and disconnected tasks and skills. So it's one level down with respect to, to Fordism. Taskization is the rebuilding of different profiles that were unimaginable before because you were able to just you know, play like, like Lego bricks with skills and provide completely new different profiles that were, were impossible to imagine in one single person before. And thus giving rise to new jobs. And servitization is the enabler of all that, is you know, the fact that all the available offer and value-added services are relying on a worldwide hyper-connected platform that enables uh, this feeding of different profiles from everywhere in the world. Um, this also speaks to uh, the paramount part of the technologies that we have, and we have uh, another traits that we have is AI and humans. That's about the capacity of artificial intelligence and machine cognition to scale individuals up, out, and within. Then we we go through uh, opportunities and then enabling laws, of course, because jurisprudence needs to move at the speed of light and not at the speed of law in, in a world that is disrupted by exponential technologies. And then the last uh, that um, I'd like to just make a very specific remark about is new value schemes. Um, the new generation will have a posture towards business that's not ju just about the usual bottom line, but it's about trust, responsibility, attention, merit, and sustainability. It's not that the new generation just aspires to a better respect for the environment and more transparency in business. That is shallow and worn out to think that of sustainability. So more environment, as I keep hearing in, in lots of forums, is an overly simplistic way to think sustainability. It's not the environment. New values, it's all that list. It's trust, responsibility, attention, merit. and the fact that I'm not choosing uh, just who to give my expertise based on, on my uh, stipend, but on the trust that a brand inspires. It's the, I'm not working for the law firm who protected those responsible for the opioid crisis in the US. It's the, I value more a leader that shows off work-life balance rather than a Porsche. Or it's let me see what, what hashtags this brand has supported before. And these are just examples in the present because new values in 2030 will require us thinking in a new and entirely different way. So it's understanding new metaphors of meaning in, in 2030. End of the sermon. No, no, that's, that's really good to, to get a sort of breakdown of the, of the 10 traits. And, and certainly that last one, if we think back even 10 years, you know, um, yes, obviously some employees cared about the environment and sustainability, but now it's an absolute demand that, 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 that if you're working in an organization, you want that organization to care about the climate. Um, you want that organization to be very clear around diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and to actually benefit society as well. Um, you know, we saw uh, the, the, the executive roundtable of, of, of the biggest companies in the US, I think it's about 180 of them. You know, they said that it's not all about profit anymore. It's about sustainability. It's about supporting communities. So that's now, as you said, Gabriel. So, you know, where we'll be in 10 times is, is, is probably is, is, we can magnify that a little bit. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you're looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the MyHR Future Academy. It's a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you'll see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gaps, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career.
Now let's go back to the conversation with Isabel and Gabriel as we explore in detail three of the 22 disciplines that are designed to help HR leaders prepare and anticipate for change. You outline the 10 traits and then you start to talk about 22 disciplines for the future of HR and how they interlock with those 10 traits that you walk through there in, in, in such good, good detail, Gabriel. We don't have time, unfortunately, to go through all the 22 disciplines. So first, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the know your employee uh, discipline. All right. Um, just before I, I talk about this discipline, um, you have to see that those traits that Gabriel was mentioning, these are very uh, broad uh, trends. Right. And so our idea was to see how they weave with each other and how they you know, impact the world a bit more concretely to give to HR leaders, um, you know, uh, indications on where they should be developing or making their discipline evolve. So and that's where we have 22 um, uh, disciplines that emerged. So looking at those traits and being a bit more concrete. Um, so you wanted to know about um, know your employees. So why should we know our employees, right? Um, well, if you think that, um, well, let me start with that. What is it that most companies lack of these days? So, I mean, besides digital skills, uh, it's clearly engagement, right? Employee engagement. So uh, we have all seen the wave of resignation uh, that led to the so-called great resignation or great attrition, right? So now how do companies build engagement? And I think they will only reach honest engagement if they care, uh, if they care about their employees' aspirations and when they offer to help co-design their lives beyond their work. And um, to do so, they need to know them. I mean, they just need to know their employees. And, uh, and the name, Know Your Employee, which uh, is uh, the acronym is KYE, that comes from the famous KYC acronym, Know Your Customer, which comes from the finance world. So in the finance world, uh, KYC strategies, they've been developed to avoid fraud, attacks, corruption, money laundering, and in fine, to ensure business sustainability and success. So here it's the same, right? It's, know your, it's not know your customer, it's know your employee. And here we're also adding the idea of customer intimacy. So that's another concept that we're bringing uh, customer intimacy is about the more you know about your customer needs and interests, the better you can serve them and the more you can sell, right? So the more customer insights we have, basically gathering data, analyzing them, exploiting them in all possible ways, um, you know, that we can collect on customers, that's called customer intelligence. Um, now, um, this customer intimacy is more than just gathering data. It's true um, engagement. Um, so what we suggest here with the KYE discipline is that the more you know your employees, the more you can actually help to them their lives and their aspirations, and the more engaged they will be. And that's what we're looking for. We want more engagement. So this is the whole point of the KYE discipline. You could argue that the lines between work, I think you both talked to this actually, the lines between work and life have become much more blurry over the last two, three, two, two years in, in the pandemic in particular. Um, you know, can you talk about how the discipline of aspirations and, and life design fits into, into a post-pandemic world? Well, that, that totally follows uh, the previous question, right? The lines are blurred, the lines between private and professional life, they're blurred. I mean, uh, we're working from home now, and plus life it used to be straightforward with study, work, and retire, but uh, this three-stage life, this is gone. And I think so is the old psychological contract between employee and employer, where the employee would offer his loyalty in exchange for security. So, I mean, today there's no being loyal anymore uh, because no employer can really offer security anymore. So today, if the employer wants want performance and engagement, and we said that this is what we want, they will need to offer employability and career guidance, um, or else employees will leave, as they have actually heavily done in the post-pandemic, uh, you know, that led to the great resignation. So um, now, of course, a lot of people will say, no, but we've been offering transition support already. But I think, honestly, this has been mainly in terms of um, outplacement services. And 
the idea behind was, you know, to prevent legal or image risk when people were laying um, laying off um, employees. So today, employers, uh, if they want to secure those right talents, and we have a war for talent, I mean, that's like making headlines, um, they will have to adapt and, and strive to become uh, lifelong partners for their employees. So HR, they should manage the relationship with their employees, but before, during, and after their employment. And actually back, because nothing's linear anymore. Uh, you know, like an employee or even a trainee, they may come back decades later, say as a consultant or even better as a client. So those real relationships and, and, and genuinely caring about employees' aspirations, it actually matters for the bottom line, right? So, uh, so the idea behind aspirations and life design discipline that anticipating and easing change within or outside of the organization to in fine improve business. Fascinating and, and, and completely agree on some of the stuff that we're already beginning to see. Um, and lastly, use a great term, which, um, you know, we really like hacktivism um, for one of the disciplines. You know, what is the discipline of HR hacktivism? Well, in a world that is molded by complexity, conversion, and exponentiality, you can just be pondering responses. Uh, ready with a broad and crisp, ample apertures of options. So you have to create high-risk, high-value alternatives for HR to be prepared for the unforeseen and amplify organizational resilience. Now, the discipline of HR activism encompasses a, a passion for tinkering and noodling around a number of different ideas, you know, new, expansionary, or even radical. You play with ambidextrous ideas. HR hacktivism then, uh, you know, organizes red teaming and reverse brainstorming on everything HR. Examples of ideas that can be tackled in here uh, could be, you know, understanding unspoken forces at work, organizational culture, or whatever strengthens this practice of complacency and finding possible ways to integrate all of them into a more successful corporate culture or even experimenting with new value schemes. The idea is being a constant source of HR adaptation and doing structured or unstructured exploration of possibilities. Uh, we have to remind that it is fundamental to be ready for constant disruption. So you have to be agile. You have to be creative. You have to be prepared for the unexpected. So hacking HR here is like uh, finding the angle not seen, the road not taken, challenge the established paradigms, and thrive in unorthodoxy. And that's very rapid, agile, and iterative. And I think that leads really nicely to the, the question that we're asking everyone on this series. You know, we live in an experienced economy, and, 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 and that's only going to get increasingly so as well. And, um, you know, and hacktivism is a, is a great way, a tool for HR to, to, to help unlock that experienced economy when it comes to, the, to the, the, the enterprise itself. So this is the question we're asking everyone on this series. And, you know, I invite one of you or both of you to, to, to walk us through it. Um, you know, what is the role of technology in supporting employee experience? Well, I'll give you an answer that's straight from our uh, new work and our new book that will be out at the end of the year. Uh, that's around education futures. Um, technology ecosystemify and tech as you want. So the, the two uh, mantras here, the two tenets are ecosystemify and tech it as you want. Um, ecosystemifying is tied to the fact that technology creates ecosystems. Now you need an ecosystem because in a complex world, everything is interconnected. And the more in the interconnections you have, the more complex the system. So you have to be aware of all the connections that are creating um, emergent properties that you may be willing to exploit. Uh, and thus, you need to create ecosystems to be able to exploit these emergent characteristics. Um, now, as complexity is classically measured as the number of interconnections, then um, you need to create 
more in interconnected networks. And it's not just creating just networks of communication, right? So it's not just your phone, PC, app, fridge, connected light. It's about creating networks of meaning. So what is connected between home, office, life, movement, transport, and all that. And that is underpinned by technology, of course. Isabel, take it as you want. All right, sure. <laughs> so, um, so what we mean here with the uh, take it as you want uh, is that uh, technology should be used as much as possible to allow for digital transformation and not merely digital transposition, right? So HR should create the conditions so that you can use technology in a way that you want and not just be limited by technology. Because what we see a lot, and you know, you know, the fragmentation of tech tools, like, you know, adding a new tool, a new CRM, a new ERP, and sooner or later, you know, some kind of access to the, to the metaverse. I mean, if all those tools, they're just added with little coherence or just because they exist, uh, the um, fragmentation, uh, that will kill employee experience. So, so technology, if you want to support employee experience, it really needs to be implemented after a thorough reflection of the processes so that the technology becomes a tool for humans and not the other way around. Because too often today, I think humans are expected to think in a way that aligns with systems and it should be the other way around. So that is, take it as you want. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Well, Isabel and Gabriel, it's been brilliant to have you on the show. Um, as, as, as I ask each of you to, to, to kind of let people know how they can stay in touch with you and follow you on social media, I'd also like to ask you to summarise one area each where you think that, you know, practitioners can start to prepare for the future today based on, on, on the HR Futures 2030 book. So, uh, Gabriel, I'll come to you first. Decision makers want options. They want to make their vision a reality. So they need to take every perspective and see clearly from every point of view. And that's where they need to transition from near to far to see every detail in sharp focus. So my, uh, my advice for uh, HR leaders and, and decision makers today is spinning up a foresight practice so that you're able to build future-informed options and have that broader overview of the disruptions incoming. That will make your organization, decision-making, and, and workforce future-ready. And that's also what allows you to prepare for the unthinkable. In our book, there's, the, there's a chart where you have act now, lead, create the advantage, and there's prepare for the unthinkable. And HR hacktivism that we talked about before is a way to prepare for the unthinkable. Trust portfolio management, one other discipline, is a way to prepare for the unthinkable. Who would have thought that we would have been in a world where we are unable to uh, establish trust between two parties and we have to discuss distributed trust, how distributed trust impacts on HR. That's a number of topics for decision makers to have broad and uh, clear directions so that they can decide better. Foresight is not a way for decision makers to ask what to decide. It's a way for decision makers to decide better. Yeah, and, and Gabriel, I think you summarized what people analytics should be within HR functions there really, really well. And, and, is, and, and I'll come back to you for your contact details in a minute, Gabriel. Isabel, one takeaway you think that, that HR can put in practice today as well? Uh, all right. So, uh, I mean, of course, we've got 22 disciplines to work on and eight years to get to 2030. So that's quite a lot. And, and I mean, we do understand that not all HR leaders are on the same way to deal with the incoming um, disruptions. So Gabriel was mentioning this low cost, high impact graph that we have in the book. So I think one of the obvious uh, low cost, high impact, we also have high cost, high impact, right? But um, the low cost, high impact, the low hanging fruits that can quickly be uh, put into action, I'd say, um, for the, the, the people listening today, would be the what we call the strategic sustainability in-casting discipline, which is very trendy and very necessary because suddenly, you know, with everything that's happened, environmental issues have been 
you know, put uh, the, to priorities far behind. So what concretely could HR do? That is, well, first walk the sustainable talk, right? And uh, um, support and guide their employees to design their own activities with at work or outside of work so that they can, as individuals, have a, a stronger support and uh, sustainable impact. So ideas, concretely three ideas, crowdsource ideas among employees um, to improve processes or reduce uh, employees' environmental impact. The second would be design carbon footprint models for employees um, uh, so you can, you know, propose applicable or actionable solutions uh, to help them minimize their impact. You know, how do they come to work? Is it by car, by bus? When do they turn off their computers and so on and so on? So easy, low hanging, low cost, high impact actions. And the last one, which is again, one of those very quickly implementable uh, action would be, and that's a cool one, which a lot of people, a lot of company here in Switzerland are starting to do is to give your employees the opportunity to offer the time, you know, be it one day or two days a year to a noble environmental or societal cause during their work hours. I mean, this is good for them. This is good for the world and it's good for the company's brand. So that would be my take for today. And a, and a wonderful way to finish, a, you know, a, a really enjoyable discussion from, from my perspective. Um, last, finally, you know, thank you for being on the show, both you, Isabel and, and Gabriel and, and listeners, you know, definitely definitely check out the HR Futures 2030 book. Um, how can people stay in touch with you? Uh, sure, we have social presence. Uh, we have a website that's unil.ch slash SCPF, Swiss Center for Positive Futures. Uh, we're both uh, present on, on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, so please do reach out to us. Isabel and Gabriel, thank you both so much for being on the show and uh, look forward to to seeing more of your work in, in the future. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show with five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. We'll be back next week for episode one of series 22, where I'll be joined by Ethan Burris, the Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Professor of Management at the University of Texas at Austin. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and take care.